Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is September 6, 2023. Did I say that right, Mark? It just feels like time is slipping away. Anyways, Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to bring you all the latest Formula One news and anything else that we come up with. Mark, we're after, we're, we're, Labor Day is now in the rearview mirror. We had like this big thunderstorm about 10 days ago. I said at the time, like it just felt like there was a shift in the seasons, even though we've had some nice weather since then. It feels like fall is here. There's, there's leaves all over the lawn. It's chilly in the morning. It cools off at night. It's beautiful during the day, but man, now that the, the kids are back to school and traffic seems to be like crazy again, it just, uh, well, let's just say it like it is. I wasn't ready for summer to end. I was having a blast and now got hit in the face with a, a big dose of reality, but you're, you're looking good. You're looking happy and you, you look nice and you, you look, you're looking sharp. You look good tonight. Well, you're very, very kind. <laughs> and I don't know why you're being so gracious today, but I totally agree. Like we had this endless five-month summer here in the city of Vancouver. And of course, people are turning off the podcast already because this is our <laughs> proverbial discussion about the weather. But it was amazing. And you're right. Like when you have a kid and back to school comes, summer just comes to a screeching halt and it's just over. But I wanted to quickly touch on something you just said. Yep. You, you talked about, hey, we're the podcast that's here to talk about F1. And what was the quote? Whatever else we come up with. So on that <laughs> note, I quickly need to get this out of my system. One, 20 minutes ago, Drake announced that his new album, drops on September 22nd. So I and about 5% of our audience are probably enthusiastic about that. And then the other update that I thought was really interesting is the Basketball World Cup is ongoing. Canada in the semifinals for the first time ever. In the other bracket, the US in the semifinals. We could, and we'll know in just a couple of days, we could have a US-Canada finals in the World Cup. And of course, both the US and Canada have qualified for the Olympics in 2024. So I'm very excited about that. It was I just had to get that out of my system because we've got like three hours of <laughs> F1 talk ahead of ourselves, but I'm excited. So I had to share that with you. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, Mark, I mean, it's just a, a great time of year. I mean, there, there's so many good things going on with sports. The weather's usually good and parents are happy because the kids are back to school and all that sort of stuff. But anyways, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment. Just before we get started, I just want to give a shout out to the race weekend magazine and you can uh, enter in uh, scuderia pod at a checkout save 10 percent on a one-year subscription you can find them at the raceweekend.com that's r-a-c-e-w-k-n-d.com also big shout out to, to racingexclusives.com they've uh, supplied us uh, with the wonderful uh, autographed max verstappen I almost forgot the autograph that's what makes the, the helmet really cool one half scale max verstappen helmet for the winner of our fantasy league this year and you can check them out at racingexclusives.com and uh, you get a certificate of authenticity with everything that they sell and uh, they got some really cool stuff over there speaking of fantasy why don't you bring us up to date because we've only got a handful of races left so it's getting tight at the top so it changes daily let's hear it. big let's changes hear it. so unfortunately it wasn't updated in time for the podcast we did on Sunday. Surprise, but surprise. Slotting up into the number one slot. Vince Des is gone. 
Michael Cronje 16 is sitting in the number one spot. Vince Des 2 has slid to number two. Mm. Matt Noob Team 3 up to the third spot. Bengals Bubs down to number four. Up to number five, Matt Noob Team 2. Who's Matt Noob Team 2 and Team 3? I don't even know, but big changes there. Up into at or up into the sixth spot at XIS. I-M-O-N underscore. So again, another team I haven't seen at all slotting all the way into the top 10. Again, you know, we keep saying this, like it's not over until it's over. We got eight Grand Prix. There's lots of yep, time. Yep. Number seven, Gotifi team. Uh, number eight, Vince Des one. Number nine, again, another team I've never even seen and a team I can't pronounce. Re Lampago Marquinhos. I, I tried that. I destroyed it, but I've never <laughs> heard of that team. Number 10, also last place. No idea who that team is, but they're in the top 10. Number 11, Crash Team Racing 1. Then number 12, Ole's Lena's. Number 13, Tails I Win. 14, That Bad Guy, or The Bad Guy Bye Bye. Number 15, Lions F1. So, wow, was there a massive shakeup. At least five teams in the top 10 that I've never seen before. That, that's awesome. And just like uh, Formula 1 itself, it's a, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, you've got some got some people like really making some moves here during the stretch run in the, in the season. So... You know, it's, it's not going to be too long before you're going to have to part with that uh, half-scale autograph Max Verstappen helmet, which I always say you were so wise never to let me... I never unboxed even... it. Yeah. I never unboxed it because I didn't want to create that emotional attachment. And I had to keep it hidden from exactly. you. Exactly. You know, as, as cranky as I was that uh, that you did that, you were entirely correct in doing so because had I even touched the box, you would not have wrenched it away from me. And uh, yeah, it, it would have been... You know, not so nice to our eventual winner. Anyways, championship update in the 2023 Formula One World Championship. Max Verstappen, Red Bull Racing, the um, the inspiration behind our half-scale autographed helmets. <laughs> the full-scale version of Max is leading the World Championship with 364 points ahead of his uh, Sergio Perez, his Red Bull teammate, who is 219. Fernando Alonso still holding on to third with 170. Only six points ahead of Lewis Hamilton of Mercedes. Uh, crazy to think that uh, that Lewis is quietly caught up to uh, Fernando or catching him quite a bit. Then uh, you have Carlos Sainz from Ferrari rounding up the top five with 117 and then honorable mentions to Charles Leclerc and George Russell, Charles with 111 and George with 109 points respectively. Then over on the constructors side, we have Red Bull, obviously, and still leading the world championship of the constructors with 583 points, which is literally miles ahead of Mercedes, who are second with 273, Ferrari third with 228, Aston Martin dropping through the order down to fourth with 217, and they're still 102 points ahead of uh, McLaren, who have 115. Had McLaren started uh, better of the year, I can't help but think that they would be pushing Aston Martin a little bit uh, more, well, they'd be pushing pushing them and uh despite the heroics of Fernando Alonso <clears throat> excuse me so um speaking of Fernando first driver in the history of Formula 1 to reach 20,000 yes that is 20,000 races or sorry laps raced in Formula 1 that is absolutely incredible i mean fernando with a you know a little hiatus here a couple of years ago from formula 1 has basically been in the sport for 20 plus years now that is an absolutely amazing stat another bit of news which seems to be happening a little bit too frequently this year total wolf is uh, to go sur undergo surgery after uh, injuring himself in a cycling accident that's uh, you know taking a little bit of uh, or copying lance stroll who 
broke his hand uh, just before the season, so Toto's going to have surgery for that. And then congrats to Gabriel uh, Bortoleto, uh, Bortoleto, pardon me, the new Formula 3 champion. So lots of uh, things uh, going on. So Mark, we got plenty of time here before we head into the first break. So why don't we uh, talk uh, a little bit now about what almost happened to Max Verstappen, uh, talk about how he did dial it back the last couple of uh, laps at Monza this past uh, weekend. So he almost didn't get that 10 consecutive uh, race win record had a um, an engine problem. His engineer instructed him to increase the gap to the preceding car, which was uh, Pierre Gasly. And after that, uh, that that happened, he was only maxing out 325 kilometers an hour, still 200 200 miles an hour. But that was 10 kilometers lower than or slower than usual, and he was dropping two seconds a lap in those last uh, couple of laps at uh, at the Italian Grand Prix last weekend. And it was funny because I. I mean, Max hinted at it. He mentioned it right out after the after the race in the um, in the in the press conference, but didn't want to say anything more until he talked to you know talked to the rest of the team. But it's kind of funny too because you know you had Yuki Sonoda pull up to the side of the track on the formation lap at the end of that back straight, just going into turn eleven into Parabolica, and these these Honda power units have been pretty invincible pretty bulletproof uh, this year so to see yuki drop out before even getting a single lap in on this one and then to hear that the championship leader himself uh, had uh, had a problem I, d- I don't know if uh, th- it was a related or similar issue but just a bit peculiar after such uh, a reliable season that uh, that both yuki sonoda and uh, max verstappen two honda powered cars both had uh, issues in the italian grand prix mark yeah, and shout out to at F Data Analysis that had a really great tweet and some uh, corroborating evidence in the form of a chart that helped to illustrate how rapidly, how rapidly Max was, uh, I would say, dropping speed and velocity towards the end of the race. And the crazy thing is, too, like you and I talked about this, that you know they've the team Red Bull have won 15 consecutive races, Max has run 10. 10 off in a row, which is phenomenal. It's a huge kind of athletic achievement to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But all of that said, it it also speaks to the remarkable reliability of everything attached to that car. The the battery store, the sorry, the electronic store, the battery, um, the 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 drivetrain, the gearbox, like all of those individual components have been immensely reliable under the pressures of Formula One racing, which is just crazy. And then we saw at the beginning of this Grand Prix, you spoke to Yuki, who's also of course got a Honda Power unit in the back of his Alpha Tauri. That Honda Power unit let go before the race and you and I were sitting here like, look, you know what, this is a pretty bulletproof, pretty invincible power unit but at some point like Sergio's going to have one of these things let go and Max is going to get let or have one of these things let go and that's exactly what almost happened at this Grand Prix so of course in this case they'll retire that power unit they'll bring out a fresh one I think we're at the point of the season we'll start to see a ton of drivers start to take penalties but I, I think this really just reinforces just how not only how capable that Honda Power Unit has been in terms of developing top end speed, but also how remarkably reliable it's been. That the reality is, any manufacturer, Mercedes and Ferrari and Alpine, can can extract maximum amounts of horsepower and top end power from their power unit. It's the challenge is doing that without eroding the internal, I would say, uh, viability of the components. Like it's pretty easy to turn up that power unit and and make a ton of power and achieve some really great top line speed. The challenge is how do you do that without the engine eating itself? And, Mm -hmm. And Honda's found that perfect balance of 
tremendous power and tremendous reliability. So they're in a phenomenal spot. But again, what this can reinforce is, hey, we, we're now talking about the fact that, hey, Red Bull's chasing this perfect season. And I think the thing that's probably going to cost them that is going to be not necessarily Max himself, but it could be a component. It could be the gearbox. It could be could be a, a drive, a power unit, something like that. And Autosport had a tweet a couple of days ago that kind of speaks to the, the current situation. They said, can anyone stop Red Bull from making it an entire calendar year without losing an F1 race? By the time we start the Singapore GP, it'll be 308 days, huh. Mr. Daly, since anyone beat Red Bull to P1 over a race distance. And I have to say right now, I don't know that there's a driver that's going to beat Max over race distance. I feel like if that happens, it's probably because of a mechanical failure that that he suffered. But even even that, it's, it's hard to predict that that's going to happen just because this car has been a masterpiece, a master class of reliability this year. Yeah, that's just it, right? I mean, that, that that's one of the things, too, that we saw, especially when when Mercedes was uh, so dominant uh, before Red Bull, you know, since they really stepped up their game in the last couple of years. I mean, those Mercedes cars were also pretty much bulletproof. I mean, we can think of a couple of really notable examples. Yeah. Malaysia 2016, exactly. baby. Yeah, yeah. Poor Lewis when uh, when his engine let go of that, Malaysia at the end of the start-finish straight That going. is burned into the memory yep. of every F1 fan, yep. that moment. Yeah, because that's where the where the championship for, for, for Nico Rosberg Completely was, was decided. Yeah, yep. because then, I mean, Lewis had to push, and from there, those last four or five races... Nico was just, uh, he was just doing what he needed to maintain that gap. And ultimately, I mean, it was came down to like five points at the end of the season. But then, of course, the the other notable one was when both Lewis and Valtteri retired. They had a double DNF at Austria one year. And those are the only two like immediate like uh, DNFs that, and they were very notable ones. There were others. I mean, there was there was quite a few that involved uh, comings together of Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. And, you know, they, they had their coming together gather famously at Spain in 2016 which gave Max his uh, his first win but the point is that when you have a team that dominates not only do they have a great driver and a great car and a great engine the car is also extremely reliable just go back and look at any of these other championship uh, caliber teams it doesn't have to be Mercedes or Red Bull go back and look at Ferrari in their heyday McLaren Williams etc that those cars whoever it's been whatever era have just been rock solid reliable and and, and it's amazing and 308 days since somebody other than a Red Bull driver won a race Mark that is just uh, blowing my mind and the, the, I I keep joking and saying that the 72 Dolphins are kind of looking over their shoulders that they're going to have maybe a you know, company up there. And But then I kind of think, well, if you asked any one of the, the 72 Dolphins, oh, what do you think about uh, Max Verstappen and Red Bull having a, a, an undefeated season this year in Formula 1? They'll be like, who? Formula what? But, you know, joking aside, incredible statistics from them. And Daily, if you speak to Helmut Marco, he was quoted earlier this week saying, if we win in Singapore... I think we can win everything this year. That that helmet Marco, I don't even know what his role is anymore. <laughs> Driver, development, coach, quote machine. I don't even know what his role is. But his perspective is that if they could go into Singapore and win on a notoriously difficult, tricky, bumpy street circuit, that he believes that they have the runway to win every race through the end of the season. And I think there's a strong possibility of that. And yeah. you know, ESPN just kind of reinforced Max's dominance over the last couple of years. ESPN put up a chart a couple of days ago. It says Max Verstappen records in Formula One, most 
consecutive wins, 10. Most wins in a single season, 15. Most points in a season, 454. Most podium finishes in a season, 18. Youngest driver to win a race, 18 years old. Of course, that was Spain in 2016 when the two Mercedes drivers came together. Youngest driver to score points at 17 years old, although I believe also Canadian Lance Stroll also scored points as a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. And youngest driver Third to start up. a race at 17 years of age. So some pretty remarkable achievements there. And again, I think the scary thing, man, is we have what, eight races left this season? Like he can just keep compiling statistics and keep compiling um, records at this point. Can, Can I just be honest with you on just going back to that Helmut Marco quote there, Mark? Like, because, you know, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll, please, I'll, please, I'll please. be honest. honest. Yeah, I'll be honest with you because I don't wake up, you know, in the morning and get up bed and, and say to myself, I hope one of the things that happens today that, that me and Helmut Marco agree and see to eye to eye on a topic. Number one, he's kind of blocked me so he doesn't answer my phone calls anymore. Not that he ever did or ever would. But, uh, you know, I have to agree with him on this one that, uh, yeah, I think if they win in Singapore next weekend, those last seven races, well, let, regardless if it's it's next weekend or the weekend after, it just becomes more and more difficult for, for somebody else to win. And I, I just look at those last eight races. I'm just like, are there any other tracks out there that that favor anybody other than Red Bull? And I'm just like... Man, I don't know. And it's just like, I I know Max was saying that uh, he feels like um, that Ferrari could be strong at Singapore next weekend, but... Boy, I, I don't really know. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, more um, before we, we do head into our first break here. If uh, you're someone other than, of let's say, more financial means than, than Hammy and myself, even though, you know, let's just say we appreciate the finer things in life, although we can't really afford the finest, finer or finer things all the time. But this is kind of cool. If uh, you have the money and the wherewithal, Sotheby's is going to be uh, auctioning off uh, Nigel Mansell's legacy collection. So this is pretty cool. So this comes from uh, rmsotheby's.com. And I'll just read it. uh, Quote, Nigel Mansell's legacy collection is a unique and unrepeatable opportunity to acquire a vast array of items that constitute the 1992 Formula World Champions personal memorabilia collection. For many years housed in his museum on the island of Jersey, the collection has been offered direct from Nigel Mansell's long-term ownership and represents items that span his entire racing career. The collection includes some of the most important uh, items of his career, including all the significant trophies won during his time spent racing in Formula One and IndyCar, including his 1992 and 1993 championship years in both those series. The collection also includes numerous race-worn helmets, race suits, boots, gloves, paddock, and other promotional clothing, podium caps, steering wheels, and even motorcycles. In total, there are 330 lots on offer, and all items are offered without reserve. For any Nigel Mansell fan or any Formula One enthusiast, the Legacy Collection is the opportunity to acquire the items of immense historical significance, none of which have ever been offered on the market. End quote. So... One thing I would love to get, and you know, like uh, for a Tease Over Racing exclusives did gift us uh, a couple of really cool things. I've got a nice half scale Sergio Perez helmet here, and I've always loved Nigel Mansell. He's my favorite driver as a kid uh, growing up. I always wanted a replica of his uh, his helmet. I know that some of the uh, some of the companies out there that uh, reproduce uh, half scale miniatures uh, have a Nigel Mansell one out there, but man, I look at this like I was just like that's I I can, I can do like a half scale helmet. That that is well within my financial 
financial, I would even say might, my, my financial ability at times. And I say this in an environment where it, like a bag of Doritos at Walmart is six freaking bucks. So, you know, I'm not bitter about that. But, you know, this is cool. When, when you see something like this, like, like Nigel Mansell's own personal collection of things and race-worn helmets and boots and gloves and, and, and things like that, that's really cool, you know? And Daily, the, the collection, and I, I don't know if you had a chance to go through it. it there's a lot of stuff here. Like, yeah. it feels really personal and maybe that's just because from my perspective if if i had his accomplishments and i'd i'd accrued all of this all of these achievements over my career like i'd either want them in a museum i would want them in my house like i i wouldn't be selling them and like I, i'm going through the collection right now like 1999 or 1990 canadian formula one grand prix third place trophy uh being offered between one and two thousand british uh british pounds offered without reserve mm-hmm. 1984 dutch grand prix third place trophy one to two thousand pounds offered without a reserve a 1995 nigel mansell formula one helmet one thousand to two thousand british pounds offered without reserve and you go through it um like there's hungary the hungarian or hungarian grand prix pre-trophies from 1986 to 1991 French Grand Prix trophy for finishing first place, 1,000 to 2,000 British Grand or British pounds. Like it's crazy. And another one, 1993 Lola IndyCar champion crystal bowl with eight glasses and ladle one to 2,000 pounds without reserve. Like it is a remarkable collection uh, race worn helmets, race worn suits, race used tires, race used wheels, um, watches clocks it's incredible how rich this this collection is and i know a lot of our listeners probably don't have that same emotional connection to to nigel mansell that the two of us do but yeah, yeah. there's some amazing oh like 1990 1991 hungarian grand prix second place trophy two and a half to five thousand grand prix 1993 newman haas racing sparko indycar race suit with gloves boot face mask and gloves two and a half to seven and a half thousand pounds this is a remarkable collection and there's somebody out there that is going to clean up up and get some absolutely remarkable pieces to add to their collection. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm looking at some of these things here too, like the the overalls and, you know, like from his time in at Williams and at Ferrari and in IndyCar, you know, it is, it, it's pretty cool. It's pretty special. And like you say, it does have like a very personal feel to it. I mean, you look at this one here, I'm looking at one, it's, it's a premier go-karting helmet, you know, they, even that is, you know, priced to it between two and a half to 5,000 pounds. And and that, that's crazy because, you know, that that is, you know, that looks like something he just bought off the shelf and put on to go racing with. That's incredible. And then, you know, we got like, you a- know, daily, the most the most expensive piece in this entire lot uh, two personalized UK registration plates for cars. So like yep. vanity plates, um, there's two of them. They're being offered between 30 and 60,000 pounds. Wow. And the actual vanity itself is five space. NM. So five Nigel Mansell. That's that is cool. the most expensive. And then the second most expensive piece is presumably a race worn, but a 1992 Canon Williams Renault uh, Arai Formula One helmet being offered between 30 and 50,000 uh, British pounds. That that is very very cool, and one of the other things too. I mean, you can tell this is out of museum because there's a a large scale um, 1991. Uh, it's a tribute to the 1991 uh, British Grand Prix, and if you remember that one, that's the year that uh, Senna ran out of gas, like he ran out of petrol oh, right, on on the right, cool down right. lap, and then back in the day, you know, like drivers would actually give other drivers rides back to the pits, and and Senna and, and Ansel were, were were rivals back in the day, and Senna just went and hopped uh, on the race 
radiator and sat on the side pod and Nigel drove, you know, I say slowly back to the pits. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think that, uh, that, you know, like when you look at, uh, you know, things today that, that, that wasn't even allowed back then, but, uh, very, very cool. And like I say, you know, I, I'd love to be someone that had <laughs> that, uh, you know, that sort of like financial clout because I mean, there are some amazing, absolutely like one of a kind things here, you know, that's, uh, it's just, it's, it, it's ridiculous how it is. And like you say, very, very personal feeling as, uh, as well. Anyway, so uh, Mark, I think that's a, a perfect place to take a, a quick break. We will come back on the other side and we'll dive into the news and we got lots to talk about. So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. So we kind of went a little bit uh, further into that first segment than I thought, but we got lots of uh, exciting things to talk about. So let's cue the breaking news music, Mark, and let you take this away because big news this week regarding Andretti Motorsports. I just have to let the music play. <laughs> I, I need the I need the tension to build before we get to the story. So the good news is there is I don't even want to say it. Well, there is news. There is news related to Andretti Motorsports. And there's two stories this week that are particularly relevant. The first is that Andretti Autosport is officially going to rebrand as Andretti Global. And to kind of summarize the current structure, Andretti Autosport is effectively the American institution that oversees their competitions on this side of the Atlantic Ocean and operates their IndyCar teams. And Andretti Global was effectively um, a layer above Andretti, Andretti Autosport that was tasked with pursuing the Formula One team and overseeing their, their IndyCar efforts in Andretti Autosport. They had a press release a couple of days ago, and it reads, Andretti Autosport, a championship-winning motorsports organization today, announced a major rebranding initiative that will see the international organization adopt the branding of Andretti Global, the identity previously named as the parent company of the U.S.-based race team. As a brand that is built on a foundation of racing excellence, the new Andretti Global name 
they will unite all aspects of the organization under a single identity, more closely aligning with the team's already established legacy. Andretti Global currently operates in eight motorsports platforms racing across six continents with an appetite to expand its worldwide footprint into other motorsports series. Now, the reason that this is a fairly timely bit of news is that Sam Cooper over at PlanetF1.com, who's also now contributing apparently to Yahoo Finance, because this is where the stories come from, but he's reporting that Andretti is close to FIA approval. And if you remember earlier this year, the FIA initiated that expressions of interest process whereby interested candidates could launch a bid to join Formula One and the FIA would do their due diligence and they'd explore the bid. They'd look at the financial feasibility, the sustainability of the project, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's reported that the FIA is very, very close to making a recommendation that now Andretti Global be granted a Formula One team. And of course, we've spoken at length about the fact that Formula One, the commercial rights group and the teams um, adamantly refuse to acknowledge this um, and have no appetite to add an additional team. But the, the interesting thing is, Daily, as as time's gone on, I've warmed more and more to this notion that look, if you can get Andretti in a room with the with the Liberty Group, the commercial rights group, and they can bang out and negotiate an entry fee that works for both sides, like I am all for allowing 11th team on the grid. And the reason I say this is, and we've got a story about this a little bit later in the show about Haas, but I look at the grid today, man, and you've got Ferrari, you know, they're all in. And Mercedes is all in. And Red Bull is all in. And Aston Martin is all in. And then you've got some other teams. It's like, Haas, what are you doing? Like you're you're not committing maximum financial resources to this project. Like you're not really competing at the highest level possible. What are you doing? And then you've got Alpha Tauri, which is a team that for all intents and purposes shouldn't exist or should be sold <laughs> off to another party. Like, what are you doing here? Like ultimately, this is a team that would provide far more value. Cause that's what the teams keep saying, right? Like, well, we don't want to add another team because it won't add enough value to offset our loss in income through the constructors championship. Well, like I, I can't believe that Andretti wouldn't add more value, especially backed by GM and Cadillac. How could they not add more value than what Alpha Tauri is adding today? How could they not add more value than Haas is adding today? So again, we've been talking about this for six months. It sounds like the FIA is to make their announcement soon. I think that they probably wanted to get past the the entire cost cap compliance certificate distribution, which we'll talk about coming up. Uh, but I think that we will probably hear news about this uh, very, very soon. Daily, your, your thoughts? One, the rebrand seems pretty logical, um, but your perspective, because I, I talk about this a lot, but I don't know that I ever allow you the opportunity to talk <laughs> about your opinion in terms of, one, are you cool with an 11th team? And if there's going to be an 11th team, what is your perspective on it potentially being a, a GM-backed on Dreddy bid running a Renault power unit? Well, I, I think you raise uh, a perfect uh, point that if the if the teams are worried about like a, a new team not like bringing value to the sport, sure. If it was another kind of like Alpha Tauri Hask type team, I'd be like sure. But if you've got like uh, you know somebody that's a proven winner in other like like motorsport platforms like the Andretti Group. And, you know, the Andretti's themselves, however many there are of them, I've lost count beyond Michael and Mario, who are you know, <laughs> legends in their own right, is, uh, I mean, it's, it's just incredible. When it comes to point, you know, when they're, you know, when, when it comes to sort of like talking about regulatory issues and finance and things like that, I mean, that, that little whiff of smoke becomes like a big puff of smoke in, in my mind. And I, I can't help but think that, 
you know, and you just say, this is something we've been talking about for a couple of months. It's like, Mark, we've been talking about this for two years because at least because there was that uh, that time a couple of years ago when Andretti tried to swoop in and buy Sauber for whatever it was, like just under 300 million or something like that. I still kind of wonder if that was kind of like Michael's kind of like, let's throw something in the wall and see if it sticks. If maybe it does, you know, maybe, maybe it's, um, you, know, a, you know, a desperate uh, attempt, uh, you know, just to try and, you know, maybe maybe we get lucky, right? And and then we get in at a bargain basement price and then we save ourselves, you know, half a billion dollars in, in costs and things like that. So I kind of wonder that, you know, maybe that was just, um, you know, maybe they had long-term plans to get into Formula One, but that uh, th- that was just uh, maybe not desperation, but maybe an opportunist move to try and get in and, and save themselves a lot of hassle and time. But yeah, I mean, when, when you got like a major auto manufacturer like like GM, I mean, come on. I mean, the, the, there's some serious people behind this. I mean, that's why, you know, like a, you kind of salivate when you see like the partnership that that Red Bull has with Ford and, you know, like in the, the whole Red Bull powertrains thing. And it, it, it's amazing. I mean, when you look and at these teams, right? Like you said, Ferrari's all in, um, Mercedes is all in, Red Bull's all in. The the only like team that I kind of worry about uh, a little bit at times is McLaren. And, and it's not to do with their desire or anything like that. It's just that they've hit some, you know, fairly significant, you know, financial, you know, situations over the last couple of years. The fact that they don't own the MTC anymore is, you know, I can't comprehend that. But, you know, to, to go back to Andretti, I think that this is a, a group that would would bring something to Formula. The only thing that I worry about is putting the cart before the horse, you know, because here we are where... <laughs> You know, and I hate to say this, you know, the the last few months of 2023, I mean, it just it's kind of gone by in a blink of an eye. And, you know, Audi's been working on their like focusing towards 2026 for a little while now. And we know that Red Bull's been de- designing like a new power unit for a significant amount of time. And um, it, it just kind of like makes me wonder, you know, like like what would be a reasonable time frame for Andrea? ready should they be that 11th team on the grid could could they feasibly get this thing up and running and get a, like a competitive car on the grid for 26 i don't know i mean that that's 2 years but that's not a heck of a lot of time for like a startup right yeah i i agree and i think that they were far more aspirational than even that i think they wanted to be on the grid for 25 which never made sense it never no, made sense no. that you would commit to building a car that would be fundamentally obsolete after 12 months right like going into 2026 we have new chassis and arrow and we have a new power unit like why invest all those resources in a car that you're gonna have to scrap like focus on 26 uh i also think like 26 seemed like if you're not building a power unit if gm isn't starting from scratch and they're basically just going to rebadge a reno power unit then yeah maybe 26 is is doable I just, I feel like in, in you and I have talked about this and, and I've shared my thoughts about this in the past, like there's such an obvious solution here, which is if if the FIA agrees that Andretti is a good candidate to join Formula One, the solution is you force Red Bull to sell Alpha Tauri, right? Like th- that's that's the solution here. Like 
Formula One commercial rights group, other teams, you don't want an 11th team? Totally get it. But you have a lame duck team in the championship today called Alpha Tauri. And I don't know how this work would work from a legal perspective. I don't know if it's a Concord agreement thing. I don't know if it's a sporting regulation thing. But just force Red Bull to spin off Alpha Tauri. Give them that team. And maybe they scrap that team entirely and they just take that entry, that legal entry and, and utilize that. But that gets them onto the team and or onto the championship. And a hundred percent Alpha Tauri is not engineered, is not designed, is not intended to win or compete for a championship. They're here strictly to, to be subservient to the Red Bull team and to facilitate their driver development needs. Like that's a joke. It's a pathetic, disgusting joke that that is allowed in Formula One in 2023. And here's the solution: force them to sell the team. However, you know why the other teams still wouldn't like that, Mr. Daly? Because I promise you, Aston Martin and McLaren and Ferrari and Mercedes, they're all happy to have a lame duck team on the grid like that because that's one less team they have to fight for points in the championship. They are sure, probably very sure. content to let that team fester um, in its current capacity. So like at the end of the day, like I don't think you're ever going to satisfy these teams like unless unless Andretti negotiates with the commercial rights group and says, hey, we'll cut you a check for a billion dollars, which I think is unlikely, then I don't know how you satisfy these teams. And at the end of the day, I have far less sympathy for these teams than I ever had before. Their costs are significantly lower. Their 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 financial outputs like 150 million dollars a year and they're clearly they're clearly exceeding that via their income which is sponsorship and prize money. Um like and the valuation of their teams is better than it's ever been. Like I have no sympathy for these teams at this point. Like well, find yeah. a way to get Andretti in. Exactly. I know driver salaries are like are outside of the cost cap and that that that's separate, but what are going to be the costs for the like what what sort of money are the Dallas Cowboys going to throw out this year in in salaries and costs and everything to like to play in the NFL or the Golden State Warriors in the NBA for for example i mean it's going to be more than 130 million dollars plus salaries whatever it is i mean uh, let's say for you know let's call it 200 million dollars or 225 million dollars or something like that by the time you throw in uh, like driver salaries and things like that i mean these teams are probably in hundreds of billions of dollars or millions of dollars pardon me in uh, well, who knows? I mean, it's just massive, you know, the, like what, what uh, you know, what it takes to compete in like the top league. So, yeah. And it was something, too, that you're just saying that, you know, that the, the other teams, they, you know, if there's lame ducks teams in Formula One, they don't really care because, like you say, they're not competing for points. So, like, uh, Liberty could just come in and do whatever they wanted because when you think about it, everybody's kind of doing what they want or they're, they're looking out for their own best interests. And Liberty would be doing uh, the, the, the same thing for themselves. It'd be like getting another team or two teams on the grid is great because, you know, that's better for us and better for our, better for our bottom line and better for, you know, like for our revenues. And, well, who cares what the other 10 teams think, right? So it kind of comes like what I kind of like boil it down to like its most simplest thing is that it's going to benefit somebody somewhere and whatever happens, somebody's not going to be happy. I mean, either they maintain the status quo and somebody like Andretti or some of these other contenders, you know, supposed contenders that uh, we've talked about in recent months won't be happy or the uh, or Liberty decides to add another team or two teams or whatever it is. And then the other 10 teams aren't happy. So whatever. I mean, it, it's just, um, it, it's interesting, but I kind of just keep coming back to the, 
you know, that like that that one position that you you just you know put out right at the beginning is like if you have somebody that's like serious like and like Andretti that brings serious resources, brings serious money to the the, the championship, why wouldn't you want to add them? To it, and you know, I was just kind of thinking. You know, what's kind of interesting is that in the last couple of weeks, you know, who's been very silent on this topic? I'll give you one guess, and his name begins with Mohammed. Charles Barkley. Old <laughs> Charles, Charles Barkley for sure. I was going to say Bobo. <laughs> <Bo. laughs> you know, yeah, Charles Barkley for sure. But uh, no, I, I would I, just on that. I would love to hear Charles Barkley talk. Yeah. <laughs> talk Formula One. That would be amazing. That would, it would be amazing. Be. It Mohammed be bin sure. Salam. Mohammed yeah. bin Salam. It's, it's interesting, right? Because, uh, yeah. you know, he'd kind of been like offering up his, uh, you know, his un- I'd say unwarranted and unasked for opinions yeah, yeah. On, on the whole topic. And it's, it's kind of funny that uh, either he's realized himself or somebody's told him just, to, you just like, just don't weigh in on this conversation for, for a little bit because I know he was kind of ruffling some, some feathers there. But well, what do you think, Daily? Mark? I sorry, gonna, sorry, please. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, I think that there's like a significant amount of smoke here. Do, do you think that uh, that we're, you know, do you think we're going to see an announcement sometime soon for uh, Andretti? I do. I, I do. I yeah, do. I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that the FIA was probably waiting to get clear of the cost cap uh, situation, which we're going to kind of pivot to in a couple of seconds. Yay. But I 100% think, and I'm going to quickly just reference an article that we were going to discuss later in the show, simply because it ties into the Alpha Tauri conversation. But uh, sure. there's an article by Sam Cooper over at planetf1.com, friend of the show, Sam Cooper, shout out. Uh, Christian Horner in this article is uh, entitled, Christian Horner Reveals Personal Involvement in Update on Alpha Tauri future. Uh, and it continues, Christian Horner said Alpha Tauri will have a closer working relationship from next season. Red Bull's sister outfit have suffered in recent years with the team currently bottom of the Constructors' Championship. And of course, when they were Toro Rosso, they were much more aligned mechanically with their sister team. Uh, and when they went Alpha Tauri, they gained a degree of autonomy, which obviously hasn't worked for the team because they're the bottom of the Constructors' Championship. But uh, Christian Horner has been very clear that he intends to align the two teams as close as he can as per the regulations. In fact, he says, we will have a closer working relationship, he said to Planet F1 in an exclusive interview. He said, I was asked to identify a couple of candidates to get involved and create a new management team at Alpha Tauri. The two guys that I felt right for the role were Peter Baer and Laurent Mekis, uh, of course, from Ferrari. I think they'll make a very strong team. And to me, this is just... It's infuriating. It's just, it's infuriating that we are openly and publicly just discussing the fact that a team principal is guiding all of the decision making of another team on the grid, that this is just so fundamentally broken and anti-competitive. It's crazy that I will never stop talking about this until the day the team is sold. But yeah, it's just remarkable that uh, that Christian Horner is like, yeah, the team's underperformed. So he's like, I'm going to take tighter control of this team. We're going to bring them closer to Milton Keynes. We're going to share more parts as per the regulations. And I'm also going to take over the hiring for for the leadership positions on this team. Like, it's crazy, man. It's just crazy. <laughs> on, a, on a slightly related but completely unrelated note here, there is a 
tweet uh, by uh, from uh, Joe Pompliano, and uh, he tweets about sports and uh, business. And this is an interesting one, just talking about like valuations of top tier sporting organizations. So uh, he tweeted earlier today that Manchester United stock fell eighteen percent yesterday. So that would have been Tuesday after the news uh, that the club Good. will not be sold, and they're owned Good. by the Glazers, who also own the NFL Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So they lost six hundred twenty-eight million dollar. Uh, valuation and it was the worst day of trading for Man United since they went public in 2012. So yesterday they started like they were valued at 3.8 billion dollars at the end of clo- trading uh, yesterday. That the Glazers aren't going to sell the team. Their value dropped to 3.2 billion dollars. So this let, is let me get this straight. Thing. Yeah. Oh, please, please continue. Continue. So, yeah, the final uh, bit of, of info here from from Joe Pompliano is that because of that. Man United, who's arguably one of the biggest clubs in Europe and maybe one of the biggest clubs in the world, is now has less value than any team in the NFL. All 32 NFL teams are now worth wow. more than Man United. Yeah. I, and, and what I was going to add is that yeah. valuation, that $3.8 billion valuation, was basically based on the premise that the Glazers were going to sell them, right? And now that the Glazers have been clear that we intend to retain ownership, the market... Wall Street has lost total confidence in that team because of yep. how inept they've been as as an ownership uh, and as a steward to that that storied franchise. It's it's crazy. It's, right? it's absolutely. And of course, you're a Man U fan, so you must have you <laughs> suffered for decades. But I was I'm not even a, a Man U fan, and I was optimistic for a future for that club without that ownership group. And unfortunately, it's not going to change by the looks of it. Hey, and you know, maybe I'm just uh, too nice of a guy, but I I don't like to see any team struggle under poor ownership because, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's it's everybody's there to compete. And let's face it, I mean, sports is a welcome distraction from the harsh realities of life for for most of us. And then if you get like a a bunch of numbskulls in running your favorite team that, you know, and let's face it, when it comes to sports, many of us have uh, cheered for our favorite team since we were like kids and then to come see you know somebody come in like years later and ruin a good thing it's it's hard to deal with anyways talking about ruining a good thing we're going to take another quick uh, commercial break we're going to come back on the flip side we're going to talk about the results of the uh, fia's announcements into the 2022 cost cap and we'll do that in just a moment All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. And yes, the results of the 2022... Uh, investigation, examination, whatever you want to call it. Anyways, the FIA published uh, earlier this week news that all 10 Formula One teams were in compliance to the uh, with the cost cap for last season. And Mark, not only did that piece of news make my day, it made my week because I was just like, what we don't need right now is more controversy. <laughs> We've had more than enough controversy in Formula One in, in recent years with stuff that happened on the track. We didn't need more of this. I mean that uh, you know the uproar from last year that that, that Red Bull had breached the the cost cap for twenty one and Aston Martin as well. You know I, I'm I'm just glad that that's somewhere that we don't need to go this uh, that this um, this year. For for me now this has become like like almost like a non story. It's like it's it's out. It's notable because there were no breaches, and I feel like it's just going to fizzle away and disappear into the. Uh, 
you know, into the ether and just disappear from the news cycle where, you know, this story should always be, it should always be a footnote to whatever is happening, uh, you know, elsewhere in Formula One. And I'm just glad that that's the way it's going to be this year. M Dog, Daily Drizzy Drizzle, my friend. It was so funny, dude. When I saw this story come across my phone this morning, like the sense of relief that I felt <laughs> was just, just like palpable. It's just like, oh my god, thank God, thank God. Yeah. I did, I did not want six months of discussing the 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 breach and the penalty and the fact that inevitably the penalties would be too soft and the teams bickering about it in the paddock. Like to your point, you summed it up perfectly that ultimately the cost cap works when the teams comply with the cost cap, right? And and I think we're far away from an even playing field, but I, I think my biggest takeaway was, wow, what a huge relief for us. Now, all of that said, I think a cost cap breach probably would have necessitated an emergency pod and it probably would have got a lot of, uh, a lot of listeners. But at the end of the day, it's not good for the sport. It's not what we no. want to be talking about. We want to be talking about the fun stuff and driver contracts and the racing and, and the champion and things like that. Like we don't want to be talking about that. So I think you you summed it up perfectly when you speak to the fact that um, it's it's all about uh, it's all about it being a footnote. Now a couple of interesting quotes here from F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali. This was last week, so prior to the announcement of the cost cap. But he says we are in the second year of the financial regulation. And I want to be positive because I see positive elements. Financial stability has greatly increased the valuation of the teams. But as always happens when a new and complex variable is introduced, the system needs to be equipped to manage it. And all the parties involved must be able to do that. Credibility passes through the guarantee that everything is controlled down to the smallest detail. And in the event of an infringement, there must be exemplary sporting punishment, which unfortunately didn't really happen last year, a <laughs> sanction that definitively discourages teams from breaking the rules. And there's a really great article here on motorsport.com from Jonathan Noble. And he speaks to the fact that ultimately the sport needs to build a degree of trust in, in the cost cap um, and assurance that it works. Um, and it also speaks to the fact that the FIA, and I didn't know this, although maybe we spoke about this, but the FIA increased the number of full-time staff in its financial regulations department. Last year, they only had four people that were basically scouring the books of the teams to make sure that they had complied with the cost cap. Uh, this year, they're up to 10, um, meaning that the level of scrutiny is, is much more thorough than maybe it had been before. And in fact, it, this article continues that team bosses revealed that their CFOs had been handed multi-page questionnaires, multi-page questionnaires demanding more than 100 points of clarification to clear up gray areas in their own financial mm. submissions to the FAA. And furthermore, the factory visits included, so these, these 10 staff, the financial regulations department staff, furthermore, the factory visits included interviews with personnel, checking physically checking parts. The FIA had access to IT systems, WhatsApp messages, and all all the data they wanted to check that nothing to ensure that nothing untoward wow. was taking place. Wow. So uh, if if Jonathan Noble talks about increased scrutiny and the need for trust in the system, I, I feel like the FIA is building that. That said, I still I still find it remarkable that ten people could manage that feat. The only the only caution I have, and and you and I have talked about this before, is they got to get these cost cap com these cost cap compliance certificates out earlier. Man, it's September sixth. The championship is almost over. And we're only now discovering who <laughs> did and didn't comply last year. That's my that's my only beef with this. 
Well, you know, I, I'm glad that they they more than doubled the people that are tasked with going over these things because I, I mean, when when I saw that they only had four people working on it, I was just like, how how do four people pour over the financial records of ten Formula One teams? I mean, talk about your cup runneth over. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. And it, it was funny too uh, because when you're reading that uh, that quote in Jonathan Noble's article, like. I, I was agreed with everything with Stefano Domenicali said, and he lost me in that last sentence. I was just kind of like, I completely kind of like, yeah, I'm not there anymore when he said that in the event of an infringement, there must be exemplary spornish punishment, a sanction that dis- definitively discourages teams from breaking the rules. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Let, let's, you know, you're, you're being generous with uh, what you call an exemplary sporting punishment because, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Red Bull escaped, uh, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite a significant penalty for, for, for what they, you know, daily, you know, they daily, did, right? You know, I, I've talked to my buddy Randy about this so many times that what Red Bull did in 2021 was so smart that whether the overspend was intentional or not, whether they yeah. thought they could cover it up or not, it was actually an immensely smart investment because the benefits that were or it could be attributed to that overspend are paying dividends now. And the cost ultimately that the financial penalty, what was it, seven million dollars and a little bit of mm-hmm. a little reduction of wind tunnel time, like that was a very, very, very small price to pay for their overspend in 2021. And I think in hindsight, if I was a team principal and I knew I could gain an advantage and that the penalty was going to be so small, maybe I would have done the same thing. That ultimately they'll never acknowledge that, that it was intentional, but it paid off for them in a big way. And the penalty was really small. Well, then, you know, the discussion then goes into a completely different area. You get away from like financial questions and sporting questions. Then it goes into like the area of ethics, right? Because, you know, like, right. That's you, true. you know, true, like, true, you know, true. In the event, and, and we're just speculating here, we're, we're not alleging anything, you know, we're, we're not doing that. But I mean, just in a theoretical case that uh, any team would do deliberately overspend and then try and claim innocent and then accept like the, you know, the financial penalties that come along with that, you know, if, if, if that was done knowing that, okay, well, we pay a bit of a fine up front knowing that, you know, we can build a competitive car out that, that that's that's an ethical question. You know, it's kind of like turn a blind eye and, you know, kind of like, you know, plead ignorance when it, when it happens. Oh, no. Well, you know, we just you know, didn't mean that for that to, to happen. Not naming anybody in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and let's be clear, too. I think... I think if the FIA had determined last year that the overspend was nefarious and intentional, I think the penalty would have been very different. I think I agree. The, yeah. The, yeah. the evidence yeah. to them was that it was misunderstanding the regulations, misunderstanding how to account for certain things. That I think if they thought that, hey, this team principal had given orders to his staff to overspend in certain areas to try to cover it up, I think the FIA would have come down much harder than they did. Well, we talked about it at the time, right? Because like, if there was anything, like you say, nefarious going on, there would be, I'm sure, a whistleblower somewhere, and like the like the areas that they were spending on things, because the the risks outweigh the benefits. Even if uh, you know you were trying to intentionally overspend on something, knowing okay, we'll pay a fine up front, but we'll have a good car for two or three years or something like that. I mean, that would make like Spygate and some of the other Crashgate and some of these other scandals, you know, like like look 
pretty pale in comparison, right? I mean, and I, I still argue that McLaren is still in, you know, living in the hangover of, uh, of Spygate, even though it was all that time ago, just because of the huge penalties that they had to pay and the loss of reputation and all these things, even though all the people involved, you know, the big players have long since uh, moved on. I mean, the risk just uh, is, isn't worth it. And I think that uh, very much like you say, if there was anything intentional or nefarious done by Red Bull, they really would have made an example out of them. And, and, and I think that, I know some people don't like to hear it, but I, I think that the way that they, they handled the situation, the FIA, that is, I think that the punishment was appropriate. Daily, we'll wrap this topic up on this yep. quote from Jonathan Noble at motorsport.com. He says, the ultra competitive nature of F1 means paranoia about what rivals are up to is constant, whether it is about clever car components, trick systems, or sneaky spending, and suspicions about exploits will never stop. But in the end, the fact that the FI's probing left few teams totally confident that they were in the clear says much about the thoroughness of the compliance checks, which should at least provide some assuredness that any nefarious activity would have been found out. As Mercedes boss Total Wolf said earlier this year, if someone had been cavalier or has cheated, then they're going to find out. Such trust that any rule breakers are caught is critical for the cost cap to succeed. Maybe a good note to end that topic on. Yeah, so, you know, once we stop talking about Red Bull on this show, it always leads into another piece of news on Red Bull. <laughs> they, they always say we should be like an unofficial Red Bull podcast because these guys always seem to take up so much time in the uh, in the news where we discuss. But this this one is interesting, right? Because, you know, Helmut Marco's been talking a lot about what the driver pairing is uh, might be at uh, Red Bull next year or the year beyond. We've sort of already been speculating about it, what might happen at Alpha Tower, what might happen at Red Bull, what with uh, Sergio Perez, also with, um, you know, what's happened, what with uh, Nick DeFries being booted and Danny Ricardo being brought back in, who might fit in where. But the one name that's kind of like uh, popped up now in the discussion is is Lando Norris, who could, you know, is rumored to potentially be uh, a teammate of um, Max Verstappen and be a replacement for Sergio Perez. And, you know, I find that really, really interesting that that rumor is out there because, sure, McLaren is obviously not on the same level as Red Bull is, but boy, you know, like when I look at what, um, you know, the level of a driver that Lando Norris is that, I I mean, I, I don't think that there's any question that given a competitive car that, that Lando Norris would have race wins under his belt. Just like George Russell, that Mercedes was better. I think we see George with a lot more W's in his, uh, in his personal statistics. And I think it's the same thing for, for Lando. And I just kind of wonder, boy, you know, like if you were to pair Max Verstappen and Lando Norris, do you get like a couple of alpha dogs going at it? I mean, is this kind of like a reboot of uh, Rosberg and Hamilton and Senna and Prost, you know, without all the world championships uh, m- between them? You know, I guess you could, the, the closest comparison would be between uh, Rosberg and Hamilton, you know, Lewis at that point, multiple world championships and Nico knocking on the door for one. And I, I don't know, you know, like, I, I don't know if this would be a partnership that would work. I mean, no doubt Max is a great driver. Lando, I think that uh, the the best of Lando Norris is yet to come just because he hasn't had the car yet. But I just don't know how you make that uh, that, that pairing work because, you know, I, I don't see Lando playing second fiddle to Max, you know, I, I really don't. I think I think one, we should probably address the quote, uh, the, the Helmet Marco quote. And by the way, I just want to, I want to, 
pause here for a second. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend, and, and I certainly won't dox who this individual was, but he was working <laughs> in Austria for Red Bull. And right. it was when I first started doing podcasting, and I kind of like probed him like, hey, is there any chance I could ever get anyone on from Red Bull to talk F1? And he's like, Mark, he's like, there's only two people in the entire organization that are cleared to speak on behalf of Red Bull. And it's Helmut Marco and it's Christian Horner. And you're not getting either of those guys. And you know what? As time's gone on... Y- you certainly realize that that's the case, right? That when it's when it's Mercedes, it could be five, there's probably five, 10, 15 people within that organization that speak mm-hmm. to the media and answer questions. But when it comes to Red Bull, there's only two people that talk. And it's Helmut Marco, and they should probably put him on a leash. And it's, it's Christian <laughs> Horner. Probably. And this quote, and you and I talked before the show about the fact that there's, there was apparently some quotes, and you and I haven't been able to corroborate this earlier this week from Helmut Marco that were not at all appropriate. Um, but this quote, is specifically this. He says, Perez is not consistent. Norris is a candidate. And he continues on, in terms of youth and speed, he, being Lando Norris, would suit us very well. Sergio, on the other hand, is already over 30 and is expecting his fourth child. So he has other interests. So you have to see what happens next. So it's been a bit of a puzzle this week. The first is that on multiple occasions, Helmut Marco has addressed one, not only Sergio Perez's his future with this team. And remember, he's under contract through 24. So it's not like his contract's up at the end of the season and they're talking about drivers that they're going to sign for next season. He's under contract through 24. Although you and I both know damn well, Formula One contracts are worthless. Absolutely <laughs> worthless. Yep. But ultimately, he is under contract. And incidentally, so is Lando Norris. Lando Norris is also under contract through 2024. But of course, in Formula One, there's no collective bargaining agreement. So teams can speculate and speak to and commiserate and, and comment on other drivers all they want. So there's been a series of quotes this week about how how Helmut Marco thinks that Lando Norris would be a good fit. And then on top of that, uh, Sergio Perez himself has been quoted a number of times this week talking about his future with this team. And for the first time, he's really begun to acknowledge that his runway with, with Red Bull is going to end after 24. Like he's pretty clear that there is no, there is no continuation. And he says, um, and this is from the race.com, but Sergio Perez says, uh, with the season we've had is important to hold the next race as an environment where I can feel I can contribute. And that place for 2025. So he says 2024, but he really meant 25 is not here. We'll have to look for alternatives, but right now my main focus is to be here, win more races, continue winning championship with Red Bull. I have a contract until next year. And at some point next year, we will sit down and talk. So it's interesting that Helmut Marco is openly speculating about who's going to replace Sergio Perez, even though he's under contract. He's even identifying the specific driver that he wants. Sergio Perez now is questioning his future with Red Bull, kind of recognizing that, hey, if I'm back next year, I'm probably going to be lucky because I'm definitely not going to be here in 2025. You also had quotes this week from Lando Norris himself who addressed potentially joining that team. Um, I'm just going to pull those quotes up real quick. Um, bah, 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 bah. Let me bring that up. He says, I think I can happily say Max is probably one of the best drivers ever in the history of F1. I've never raced against anyone like him until I was in F1, but I was always in that category. Blow and karting, I already knew him reason well. Back in 2012, 2013 was the first time I got to meet him and got to know him. So I've been able to witness what he's doing. I think it's not just that he's in a good car and he's able to perform. I think no matter what car he's in, he'll be able to perform to a similar level. It'd be great to work alongside someone like that. And at the same time, see where I can really stand against him. 
I'd be open to it. I invited him to McLaren the other day. So if he wants to come anytime, he's very welcome. So then you also have Lando Norris under contract with McLaren through next year, openly acknowledging that, hey, yeah, I would love to be partnered with Max Verstappen. And obviously that's never going to happen at McLaren. So they can spin that any way they want. Uh, this week as well, Zach um, Zach Brown has also been asked about Lando Norris's future. And he's been very clear that, hey, he's under contract with us through 24. But that's 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 interesting coming from Zach Brown, who tends to poach drivers and, and doesn't really value contracts <laughs> as we've seen over, over in Indy. But there's all these kind of moving pieces. And then on the race weekend itself, and I don't know if you caught this, my friend, but uh, Mr. Mr. Nico Rosberg was quoted very heavily as saying he believes, based on what he's hearing, that there will be a very significant driver move in the offseason, alluding to Lando Norris going to, to Red Bull. So all of these pieces might be lining up, right? That ultimately, hey, maybe Red Bull looks to exit Sergio Perez, pay out the balance of his 24 contract, bring in Lando Norris. That would create the runway for McLaren to maybe make overtures towards winning backs, Alex Palo. Although earlier this week, Alex Palo himself was quoted as saying, hey, the reason, the reason that I exited that McLaren deal was simply because there wasn't an opportunity with the F1 team but a lot of smoke and a lot of conversation happening. So again, these drivers are both under contract for 24, but we also both know crazier things have happened in F1. Oh yeah. I, I mean, when it comes to like contracts and things like that in Formula One, I mean, uh, we, we've talked about, and we said it many times, Mark, that it's not worth the paper that it's printed on, you know, be it the, the, the hard copy or, you know, digital kind. It's just like, you know, teams will tear them up or do whatever it is at, at a, at a moment's notice if they can better themselves. It's just like, I, I think that like, the context that that Lando's comments in are important because I mean, if you're asked something like that, would you like to be partnered with like Matt, with Max Verstappen in a top team like Red Bull? I think everybody in the world would say, yeah, of course I would. I mean, this is a winning team. You know, they they've won you know a couple of uh, you know championships back to back here. They won a constructors championship. I mean, e even in the years that uh, they weren't winning the championship, I mean, they were still winning races here and there. I mean, and then you go back a decade to when when Seb was winning his chips with uh, with with Red Bull. I mean, th this is a team that knows how to win in form. Formula One, and I think that you ask any one of those other drivers that, well, except for maybe the Mercedes and like the other drivers and top teams, I mean, there'd be a pretty hard sell. I mean, you know, to to maybe want to move to. Well, I mean, I guess it depends how big the deficit is, but I think everybody will like um, you know jump at. I mean, I guess it, it, it's it's really fun to talk about and to speculate about, and much like yourself, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because. You know, expect the unexpected. Something crazy could happen just because we don't think it will, because we we don't think it's practical or anything like that. It doesn't mean anything when it comes to to, to Formula One. It's just it's the dynamic between Lando and Max, and you know, I know that they're friends and things like that. But I mean, when it comes to like partnering within a team for you know the the purpose of ch winning championships and 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 races and things like that. I mean. Max is always going to look out for for himself. I mean, he's just not hardwired anyways. I you know, you remember and most of us will remember the time where um 
sorry, I was going to say Lewis Hamilton. Michael Schumacher uh, was gifted the race win in Austria all those years ago when when Rubens Barrichello was winning, and there was that awkward moment on the podium where where Schumacher had uh, you know made Rubens stand on the top. You know, I just don't. You know, the point is, I don't see Max kind of like gifting anything to any teammates, be it big or small, and things like that. And you know, I I don't think it matters who's in that second car if it's a if it's a friend or not. I mean, Max is always going to do what's best for Max. And I think Lando would always do best for Lando. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I I think that Max casts an awfully big shadow and, and he should, I mean, he's a great driver. He's, you know, won so many races and he's, he's one of the best. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you just look at that rotating drivers, like, you know, cast of drivers that have gone in and out of that team in the last four five, six years, whatever it is. I mean, it's substantial compared to the others, right? Verstappen said to Sky Sports in Italy uh, with reference to pairing up with Lando Norris, uh, he acknowledged, we talk about it, but he's contracted McLaren for a long time. We'll see what happens in the future. The actual quote from Rosberg on the Sky Sports broadcast during the Italian Grand Prix was, where is he, Norris, going? Question mark. Next year already, I hear there's a switch coming. Uh, another interesting quote here, this was Zach Brown, although this was a month ago, speaking to the future of, of his... Uh, wonderful, young, talented driver, uh, Lando Norris. He says he loves McLaren. It's been his family. So there's no doubt in my mind is his number one choice is to win a world championship with McLaren. I think the best thing we do is to retain him is to demonstrate to him we're a team capable of doing that. It's not a case of wooing him or not wooing him. It's about giving him a car where he can look himself in the mirror and say, I think I can win a world championship with this team. We've got our team in a place that's stable. We have additional talent coming in to be a to be additive to what we currently have. We have all the financial resources we need. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So as long as we can show this progress, um, and then he goes on to speak to 2026, which is a complete reset of the regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say right now that if McLaren was performing now the way they were in Bahrain, I would confidently say Lando Norris is looking for the exit. But maybe their performance, Mark, over the last two or three months has renewed Mm -hmm. his confidence with that team and, and their trajectory and their direction. But I just feel like there's a lot of smoke here. When when Helmet is so outwardly speaking about replacing one of his two senior drivers, when he's directly referencing a driver under contract with another team, when that driver is speaking about how he would love to pair with Max Verstappen, when Max Verstappen is acknowledging outwardly that he would love to pair with Lando Norris, it's just, it's a lot of smoke. And, and I know we talked about that as a kind of a reference point and analogy a couple of minutes ago, but there's a lot going on here. So so we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens because like we said, hey, Lando, Sergio, they're under contract next year, but those contracts are worthless. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to like wrap this uh, discussion up and we'll head into another break here. But the only other thing I just uh, wanted to mention too was just uh, because the next thing we had on our show schedule here was to, to talk about Alex Palu. And I don't think we really need to donate any more time to it because, I mean, as you correctly said, that uh, the, the reason why he, he left McLaren the, and the, the, the possibility of, um, you know, that that presented was the fact that there was no opening in the at the top there. But it kind of presents an interesting situation. I mean, if Land was no longer with that team then that kind of reboots that uh, that that conversation but then that would pose an awfully you know 
interesting scenario for Zach Brown and the McLaren organization because if if, uh, if Lando were to leave, that leaves you with uh, Oscar Piastri in an empty seat and nothing against Oscar. I think he's, he's, he's rapidly proving that he's a legit Formula One driver and that uh, he's got an exciting future in front of him. But then all of a sudden, you know, think, well, you know, now do you bring Alex Palu into the, the, the mix? Also another young, exciting driver who appears that the, the sky is the limit, but unproven in Formula One. It's just kind of like, <laughs> you know, it, it would be kind of ironic. And, and I don't want to say anything bad about Zach Brown, because I think he's done an exceptionally good job with the McLaren since he, he took over there as CEO. But it would almost be like a, a little bit uh, like ironic the way that, uh, you know, he's you know, conducted his business and signing new drivers and and going around doing that. And then if Lando, regardless, you know, how that goes out or if he just waits till his term is up and moves, but it's an interesting thing. Anyway, it's going to take another quick uh, commercial break, come back on the flip side, and we'll talk a little bit more about Red Bull related topics. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. And just a, a couple of things here, just uh, you know, sticking with uh, with Red Bull related topics. Uh, Danny Ricardo continues to recover from that uh, broken wrist. He uh, suffered in a, a crash at Zandvoort last weekend. Now likely to be out until after the the, the Grand Prix in Qatar. That will be coming up uh, fairly uh, shortly. I, I don't know if we're going to see Danny Ricardo back in a car this year. So that uh, kind of uh, leaves them in a very interesting situation when it comes to that second driver for for Alpha Tower. But uh, Liam Lawson has certainly done very well. In, in let, let, let's be fair, a, a Grand Prix and a half because he didn't really get a full race weekend in at Zandvoort. I, I mean, he did very well in the sessions. Did very well that uh, he did in the race. I thought he had an exceptionally good weekend at uh, at, at Monza. I mean, uh, this this is an exciting young driver. So certainly that gives them a lot to, to think about when it comes to who they're going to put the Alpha uh, Tower. For, for for 2024. Hey, Mark? Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy that we go from a situation six six weeks ago, dude, seven weeks ago, where we're all heralding the return of Daniel Ricardo. He had a couple of great outings before the summer break. He comes back and he breaks his hand. And then all of a sudden, Liam yeah. Lawson, who's been over competing in Japan for the Super Formula Championship, he's literally thrust with no notice into a Formula One car. And he has a, a really strong outing at Zandvoort, despite the conditions. And then he has a really strong outing at at Monza, uh, despite the fact that it's only his second Grand Prix in a Formula One car, he's almost in the points with a terrible car, and he's really pretty competitive with Yuki, who's been in that car now for three seasons. It's remarkable. Uh, Helmut Marco is also apparently a huge fan of the, the New Zealander. Um, he said earlier this week that a, a promotion from reserve to factory driver could happen very, very quickly, um, acknowledging that the New Zealander is a very clear candidate for a permanent Alpha Tauri seat for 24. Um, and possibly both Yuki and Daniel Ricardo's jobs could be in jeopardy. So, of course, we were all so happy because, of course, Daniel is charismatic 
charismatic and kind and, and outgoing, but his future is now very strongly in doubt. Uh, Yuki's future could also possibly be very strongly in doubt that Yuki may have looked really effective earlier in the season because he was competing against Nick DeVries. And now all of a sudden you've got Liam Lawson, who has no experience in a Formula One car, putting in sector for sector, very similar times. Uh, but ultimately, Marco, according to this article, Marco applauds, and this is, I think, Soy Motor. Uh, Marco applauds Lawson's work during the Italian Grand Prix, in which, came, in which case he came very close to the points. The Austrian remains, or the Austrian maintains that one of the New Zealanders' priorities for the remainder of the year is to win the Japanese Super Formula. And should he win the title at the end of October, his confirmation as an official Formula One driver in 2024 could not be long in coming. Uh, says Helmut Marco, Liam has been with us for a while now, and he's a very tough and intelligent driver during on-track battles. He's a bit like Bruce McLaren, weird reference. He's someone we have to keep an eye on for the future. The speed was there at Monza, and that's a good sign, he commented in an interview. He continues, he will continue to drive Super Formula in Japan. He is second in the championship there. The fight is very difficult, but the cars are faster than in F2. With the races being so far away, he doesn't have as much visibility, but he can win the title. Maybe he will get a seat in Formula 1 instead of continuing as a reserve driver. That could happen a very, very quickly. So it's not just this conversation about Sergio Perez and going outside the academy to replace Sergio Perez. It's what's happening at Alpha Tauri that that team's going to be rebranded next year. It's going to be something Hugo Boss, Hugo Boss Bulls, something, something, something. It's going to be something Hugo Boss related. They have new leadership. Uh, they're going to change the composition of the car and integrate far more Red Bull derived components. But they could also have a completely new driver lineup as well, which is just bonkers because six weeks ago, we we're talking about, hey, is Daniel Ricardo going to earn the right to come back next year with Yuki? And now both of them could be gone. Just bonkers. I know. And that's interesting, too. But I mean, it's funny. And I, I know that uh, Ricardo really didn't get the longest time to to really settle in. I mean, that that accident was untimely and unfortunate. But I mean, the times that he was there, I mean, he was doing just as good as, if not better than Yuki. So I mean, I think that's why there it throws up like a lot of question marks around uh, Yuki Sonoda. I mean, the difference between Yuki and, and, and Ricardo is... He, he, I think it comes down to the driver themselves. It's just like, who do you want in that car if uh, Danny Ricardo is doing slightly better or equal to Yuki Sonoda? I mean, Dan's a recognizable, beloved, you know, character in, in Formula One compared... I mean, I, I love Yuki too, but I, I mean, I almost... You know, even at you know Alpha Tauri, I I see that Dan Ricardo even at thirty two or whatever he is, I see him as an upgrade on on Yuki Sonoda. I mean, Yuki's been in that car for two and three quarter years now. I mean, I'd expect it. And granted, the ATR four isn't one of the best cars on the grid. We all know that, but I mean, he's he's been shown up by two guys that uh, haven't had a great deal amount of time in the car this year. And, you know, I mean, obviously DeFries wasn't pushing him in the, you know, the first half of the season before he was let go. So it really raises a lot of uh, questions. I mean, I don't think that Alpha Tauri in 2024 is going to be Yuki Sonoda plus blank Liam Lawson or Danny Ricardo. I think it could be any two of those three drivers. I, I don't think Yuki's a lock by any, any uh, stretch of the imagination. 
Um, next story, kind of going back and well, not really going back to, but sticking with the broader Red Bull family is uh, Max Verstappen's comments that uh, the Red Bull is not designed around his uh, his driving style. Well, you know, fill us in on yeah, that, Mark. I'd me, love to let me hear take this that. One. Plus, your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course, man. And boy, dude, like we got to rebrand the show. Like for all the hate we get for being too critical of Red Bull, we spend seventy percent of the show talking about Red Bull <laughs> Red Bull topics. So this hey, is this. Let's let's be fair we give them their their due credit oh, as well man. i mean do I, we know, ever. Like, I i think we try to do a pretty good job you know do we ever so this is an article from autosport.com and it's written by adam cooper and it speaks to this ongoing criticism of probably less a criticism of Max Verstappen, but more a criticism of the Formula One cars that are built at the Red Bull factory, Milton Keynes. And I think there's a lot of criticism that Max is very successful in that car because it's designed for him. And and when I talk about design for him, I'm not talking about the fact that the race seat was molded for him because every driver gets a molded seat. But there's this ongoing conversation about the fact that, look, Max has always significantly outperformed his teammates, regardless of who they were, whether it was Sergio or Daniel Ricciardo or whoever else it may have been. But he significantly outperforms them because Red Bull ultimately designs the car in a way that accentuates his talents and his strengths. And and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? That if you look at a Formula One car, the chief influence of the car itself is the regulations. The regulations drive a lot of the decision-making that the designers and the engineers have. And that the driver themselves... Don't, doesn't have a ton of influence, but I, I saw a comment on Reddit that that made a lot of sense to me, and and it was it was basically this: it's look, Max has been in that car for a very long time. He's been in that senior team since what 2016. That's when he got the promotion halfway yep. through 2016. So he's been around for a very long time. That consistency is key because he's familiar with the development cycle. He's familiar with the engineers. He's also a very good driver. And it's not that the car is necessarily being designed specifically for him. It's just that he gives very, very good feedback about the car. And that feedback is what is what is taken by the engineers and the designers to, to make improvements to the car. So yes, he has a lot of input into the car, but ultimately that input is coming from the fact that he just provides very, very good feedback. Now, in this article by Adam Cooper, um, he goes on to try to speak to the fact that, hey, ultimately this car isn't heavily designed for me, that ultimately I'm just very good at adapting to the cars that are provided to me, which is probably very, 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 very true. So there's an interesting quote here from Verstappen himself responding to the fact that, hey, the car that is given to him is one that's designed to maximize his potential based on his driving style. He says, BS. Um, he said, or he said, they're BS comments. He says, I just drive the car I get to the fastest way possible. I'm not there to tell the guys to give me more front end because that's, that's how I like it. I'll just say, design me the fastest car and I'll drive around that. Every single year, it's just different. Every car drives a little bit different. People will say, what is your driving style? My driving style is not something particular. I adapt to what I need for the car to go quick. Um, and he continues on. I'm not out there to try and prove anything really. I'm just there to do the best I can with the material I have. And he continues. And I probably also, people don't know what's going on within the team and how difficult it is when you have a very good car to deliver where we are going as a team. And it went basically every single race. So I, I think he's probably feeling 
that, I don't want to say it's pressure, but I think he feels the criticism that, hey, you know what? He's gifted a car that is engineered specifically for his driving style. And I think he pushes back and says, no, I just say, give me the fastest car possible and I will adapt to it. Meanwhile, the input that a driver does have through feedback that's given to the engineers or the designers and things does come from him because he's a reliable source of information and he's been there for a very long time. But I, I would mm -hmm. agree that given given the strength of the regulations in Formula One cars, I don't think there's a lot they could do to really engineer. Like ultimately the chassis, the chassis is the chassis and there's not a lot you can do there in terms of developing a chassis that you need to the driver. Like you can set up, you can set up how loose the rear end is. You can set up how loose the front end is. You can set up some of the aerodynamic properties of the car in a way that the driver prefers. But ultimately, I don't think any of this is at a significant disadvantage to the other person in the second car that I just think he's that good of a driver that he he's significantly outperformed the other people that have been paired next to him. And I also don't think that Red Bull have necessarily done a good enough job of nurturing some of those drivers that have been paired next to him, including Alexander Albon. And, you know, my, my buddy Randy sent me a really interesting quote the other day because you and I were talking about Alexander Albon on the most recent show. And, and he shared this comment with me, which I thought was, was really accurate. Um, he says, uh, what was it he said here? He said, my take on Albon, he got a lot of garbage um, at Red Bull. They were unhappy with his overall performance and a difficult car that's been purpose developed for a single driver. And Horner and Marco screamed it to the world every single chance they got, which was true. He showed or tremendous strength of character to not only survive, but thrive in a less toxic environment. So I, I don't necessarily agree with the fact that, hey, he wasn't successful because the car was designed for a driving style that wasn't his own. But I do agree that he wasn't nurtured and wasn't given enough of an opportunity to be successful there. So I think think all of this to say, um, does, does, does Max have influence and input onto the development of the car for sure. But I would say that the overriding influence is the regulations themselves, less so the driver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we should also point out that Max has the, the, the benefit of driving in a car designed by Adrian Newey, Absolutely. which is, you know, a real, a real plus, but you know, I, I think you could take uh, guys like Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Lewis as well. You could probably put them in a shopping car with a lawnmower engine and they're going to set times half a second faster than everyone else. And even, you know, drivers of the same uh, machinery. I mean, the, 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 and I mean, they're all prodigiously awesome drivers but there there's some of them just have that extra level above i mean look what charles did when he had that rookie season at sauber i mean he was not just a little bit quicker than marcus erickson and look what marcus has done in indycar i mean he's been a rock star in indycar the last couple of years so i mean he's, he's a good driver but when they were paired at, in, in four wheel one together at sauber i mean charles in his rookie season was just light years ahead of marcus and i mean that just goes to speak to, to his talent and i think that um you know Let's just put it there. There, there, there are good drivers, and then there, there are great drivers out there. And the great ones, they'll be able to do, and they'll do something special with almost anything. But give them a special car, and they'll do amazing things with it. You can take Max and any other example that you want. There are like you know plenty of uh, plenty of those to, to to draw from. Okay, so we're finally going to get away from from Red Bull here. We're going to talk uh, very quickly about uh, Nico Hulkenberg, who is uh, you know, unhappy of what he calls 
Marvel's uh, terribly bad Hass development. I don't really know if we need to elaborate on this. I mean, uh, Hulk is back in Formula One after kind of taking a, a brief hiatus, and he filled in here and there during COVID for for teams that needed uh, needed someone to to fill a spot when they had a driver that was out. I mean, he's I think he's the most experienced driver. I can't remember what his record is now. He's the most experienced driver in Formula One never to score a uh, a, a podium. I mean, he's he's consistent. He's reliable. Never really had a good car, but I mean, I I don't know, Mark. I mean, I, I think that's just uh, you know we we we've been very critical about Haas over the years. I mean, you know, Nico just kind of like saying something out loud. I think it just kind of speaks for itself. I don't know if you want to add yeah, anything yeah, to this. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. Uh, the quote itself was this, which is pretty telling. He says, we are terribly bad compared to the competition. We're the only team that didn't bring anything with us to Monza in terms of upgrades. Anyone who does so little can't expect much. Uh, we're not worthy of points here, and we are far from it. We have to accept that now. In 14 days, we'll continue on a track that maybe suits us a little better, being Singapore. I don't expect any huge, bright, patches this team and 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 this is this is what i was talking about off the top right like you talk about the value that andretti might or might not bring to formula one surely they would bring more value to the sport than than haas and and you look at gunther steiner who's been a part of that organization since day one and i think he joined haas two years before they hit the grid in 2014 like what what is going Mm -hmm. on here like they don't spend the money uh, they they clearly don't have the right personnel to develop a great car, despite the fact that they're based effectively based on the Marinello campus and they extract every conceivable part they can from Ferrari based on the current regulations. Like, like what 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 is the end game here? Like, Gene Haas, what are you doing? Is is your intention <laughs> that you want to compete for championships? Because it's clearly that that's not the case. And how many times have we seen on Drive to Survive that Gunther Steiner gets that phone call from Gene Haas and all that Gene Haas cares about is like how much money in, in terms of car damage happened during the race. Like, like where, where's your commitment to this team and, and spending to the cap? But it's good to see the drivers are frustrated. I just, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I think, I think Gunther Steiner will continue to lead this team because he's able to operate it based on the budget that's provided by Gene Haas. But I don't think this team will ever compete for championships. And that's where I get frustrated that, again, it's another lame duck team on the grid, like Alpha Tauri that will never compete for a variety of reasons. And I just think, Andretti, who would spend to the cap and who would invest and pursue great drivers, could lend so much more value to the sport than than money Graham Haas. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm no, nothing further to add on that one. A couple of uh, interesting ones here just uh, before we uh, we we get away from Formula and finish off the show with MotoGP Corner. But there's an interesting article from uh, Jonathan Noble with uh, quotes from uh, a number of Formula One drivers complaining about how hard it is uh, to, to follow cars. Uh, and, you know, this is a complaint that we had from the previous generation. One of the quotes uh, comes from, uh, from Carlos Sainz, who says, quote, at 99% of tracks, I think we're going to need DRS and we're going to need to powerful DRS because these cars from the beginning of the year are starting to become a bit like 21 or 20 where it is difficult to follow. Obviously Monza is a special case because you don't only have the DRS, you also have very long straights of slipstreaming, which helps a bit more the car behind, but I think the rest of the tracks we're going to need the DRS and quotes. And uh, Max Verstappen uh, reigning world champ had the following to say, quote, I think in most tracks we still struggle to follow or pass. I mean at the beginning of the year a lot of uh, people were complaining about passing. Uh, We had the 
luxury of being a quick car, we could still pass in like Miami, where I think everyone was complaining about the passing. Remember the briefings with DRS? I think the cars are getting more and more efficient and they have more downforce, so it's harder to follow and they're more efficient on the straight. Naturally, here at Monza, there's less DRS uh, effect because there's almost almost no wing on the car, but it really depends on the track. At Monza, for example, if Carlos, uh, he was putting the track in the middle under the braking to turn one, it's almost too impossible to do something because if I go for it and he moves just a little bit to the right, there's no space anymore, end quote. There's more quotes, uh, you know, from, from Sergio Perez, but it feels like we've almost uh, you know, reached a, a bit of a, a stalemate here. Hammy, you want to add anything to that one? No, only that it seems like we're diverging from the benefits that these new regulations were supposed to introduce, which was less dirty air off the back of the car, which makes it yep. easier to follow. Um, and it seems like the development of these cars, the fact that we lifted them this year because we wanted to we wanted to get away from that porpoising, that, that a lot of the development and, and the kind of progress that these teams have made in increasing downforce and introducing new aerodynamic efficiency, they've they've offset the the benefits of going to downforce generated on the other side of the car. And it's frustrating because it's just going to erode the quality of the racing. And there was a lot of excitement going into 2010 that we were going to have closer racing. And there was a lot of excitement going into 2022 that we were going to have closer racing. And then you hear these quotes from the drivers and they're basically like, look, we're back to where we were in 20 and 21, uh, which is when mm-hmm. there was a ton of dirty air coming off these cars. And, and, passing and following and and overtaking was very difficult so yeah it's it's unfortunate that that's that that's where we are again yeah yeah i agree and finally here this is a crazy story but uh, carlos science uh, you know chased down a couple of thieves with the help of his bodyguard after he had his uh this is crazy a half million dollar richard mila watch uh, stolen Uh, this was outside of his uh, hotel in uh, milan uh anyways uh carlos uh tweeted afterwards uh quote many thanks to all the people who helped us yesterday to the milan police for the quick intervention and thanks for all your messages so apparently Apparently, he was uh, lifted, relieved of his watch, and then, uh, you know, he chased uh, down, uh, you know, a couple of thieves and, uh, you know, some passersby, some, uh, you know, uh, some good Samaritans uh, in the the public, uh, you know, helped out as well before the the police came and they handed them over. This uh, kind of follows up uh, with uh, what happened with Charles Leclerc. He also had a Richard Mila watch, which was uh, valued at 320 grand, and two people uh, wearing motorcycle helmets uh, came up to him, asked for a, a photo, robbed him of his watch and uh, that's uh, you know crazy so four people were arrested this year in April for that and then a couple of years ago Lando Norris had his watch uh, stolen after the uh, unpleasantness at Wembley after the Euro 2020 soccer final and uh, that was uh, kind of crazy I'm surprised that Carlos himself went after the people I could understand his bodyguard but dude, didn't but- Carlos signs or didn't uh, didn't Charles Leclerc do the same thing like I feel like I Charles believe Leclerc- he did dude yeah so, so let's back this up so at Wimbledon Last year was it last year? Lando Norris is robbed in the parking lot of his watch, and then Charles. Leclerc, oh, that was at Wembley. Yeah, that Wembley, was at Wembley, Wembley. Yep. Yeah, yeah, Wimbledon. Yep. It definitely wasn't Wimbledon. It was a football match. <laughs> yeah, get, the W. Get your right? stadiums yeah. correct. So Lando's <laughs> robbed in person. Uh, Charles Leclerc is robbed in person, and now Carlos Sainz. At what point do they not think that strapping a two hundred and fifty or five hundred thousand dollar timepiece to the wrist of these drivers is not a smart move? That I get it when they're in front of the cameras in the paddock, but they should not be 
they should not be making themselves so vulnerable off the track that this is three times. And then the other piece too is the fact that the drivers feel they need to put themselves in harm's way by chasing these thieves is is crazy. And maybe there's some urgency because yeah. they don't actually own the timepieces and they're just a marketing piece. But good God, man, do not do not put the drivers' lives at risk by at risk by strapping multi hundred thousand dollar watches to their wrists. This is crazy, and it can't continue to happen. Yeah, you know, I, I can get you like a $30 Timex if you want to wear something else. But I mean, these guys have like unlimited funds. I mean, they could drop 10 grand on on a very, very nice Rolex and they're still going to look pretty good going outside. I mean, it's just, uh, it, 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 it's it's crazy, you know, and, and the fact that both of them have gone and run after them. I mean, at some point, you know, somebody's got to say, you know, step in is like, you know, you could get seriously hurt, you know, uh, if something like that uh, happens. Anyways, Hammy, time to wrap up for me loin because you know what time it is welcome to moto gp corner it feels daily it feels like it's been a while since we've done a moto gp corner segment so We've got a slightly bigger one today, and we're going to take you through the current Constructors Championship, and we're going to touch on a couple of other stories. The first thing to acknowledge, and I wanted to share this on Sunday, but we had such a thrilling Formula One race, I didn't want to kind of sour the mood, but at the Catalan Grand Prix on the weekend, there was a massive crash at T2. So again, I think a lot of our listeners probably know that circuit. There's a huge straightaway from the start-finish line, um, and it goes into a very tight corner. Unfortunately, at the MotoGP event on the weekend, there was a major crash after championship leader Pecco Bagnaia got caught up in a terrifying open lap, opening lap incident, which ultimately red flagged the race. Multiple riders were swept away in this brutal, brutal crash. Bagnaia was leading the field coming out of turn two at the Barcelona track when he had a massive high side. He got launched into the air off his Ducati and continued to spin around as he landed. Now, it gets worse because the reigning champion was then run over by Brad Binder, the KTM driver, who ran over his legs, which was just horrifying, horrifying, horrifying. So the good news is that the championship leader, uh, Peko Bagnaia, is, is not unharmed because they discovered a bunch of injuries uh, in the x-ray, although they believe they may may have been pre-existing and they expect him to be back on the bike soon. Unfortunately, his Ducati teammate uh, suffered a major break and he's going to be out for a while and will probably require surgery, but it was just a very, very ugly crash. And I think the response from the riders was, hey, approaching this corner, a very sharp, dangerous corner in a big pack of bikes at 200 kilometers an hour probably is a little bit unsafe. And there might be questions about moving that start finish line closer to that corner so the riders don't carry quite as much speed into that corner as they did during the Sunday Grand Prix. So fortunately, uh, while a couple of the riders are not insignificantly hurt um, and that Bagnaya's teammates, whose name I cannot pronounce, um, will probably require surgery, um, I think we were lucky to escape without any worse injuries. But again, anytime you see a race red flag because of a major crash involving riders is always very, very scary. So having said that, I'll provide everyone with a quick 
quick update on the Drivers' Championship, the Drivers', the Riders' Championship, and the Constructors' Championship. Uh, Pecco Bagnaia, Francesco Bagnaia, the Italian driver, driver market your crap together the italian rider <laughs> riding for ducati lenovo currently leads the championship with 260 points he's got two he's got a 50 point lead on the second place finisher uh jorge martin who's riding for prima pramac racing sits on 210 uh, marco bezzecchi another italian rider racing for valentino rossi's moody vr46 racing team currently sits in third on 189 points and the ktm rider brad bender from south africa currently sits in fourth on 166 points uh from a constructor's perspective obviously ducati is dominating they sit on 379 points followed by ktm at 215 aprilia at 209 uh yamaha at 102 and, and the factory honda team on a very disappointing 96 points and then the team's championship prima pramac racing obviously the ducati power team 351 points vr46 racing team that's valentino rossi's new team number two in the team's championship 314 points of course they are a ducati power team as well ducati lenovo is sitting third on 295 points and red bull ktm uh, the highest ranking non-ducati power team sits fourth on 270 points and then just a couple of other quick stories here um, if you don't know and you probably don't because i haven't talked about this before but triumph the british motorcycle manufacturer is is the team that has been supplying the Moto2 championship with chassis and power units since 2019. They are going to extend that deal through 2029. And if you didn't know, prior to Triumph taking over and supplying MotoGP or Moto2 with a 765cc power unit, uh, that series was being supplied with 600cc power units from Honda. The much, much, much more powerful Triumph power units have been something of a revelation. And with those new power units, they have smashed lap records everywhere that Moto2 has gone. This is good news because I have a very soft spot for, for Triumph. The interesting thing about this is Triumph speaks a lot about road relevancy, road relevancy, road relevancy, but Triumph really also hasn't actually produced a sports bike since 2016. They've been selling in very limited quantities for the last couple of years, a 765cc Triumph Daytona uh, bike that is based loosely on the Moto two bike. Um, it's very expensive and super exclusive and certainly not mainstream, but it is interesting that Triumph, a company who doesn't really operate in the sport bike space currently um, has been supplying Moto2 with their engines, which is cool nonetheless. And of course, I'm a big Triumph fan having had a Daytona 675 sport bike in the past. So that's a cool news story. Um, and then another one, this is from uh, motorsport.com. Uh, continued signs suggesting that Marquez is looking for a clean break from Honda and looks to start over potentially as soon as next year. Of course, this season has been a horror, an absolutely horror season for Honda, for their for their factory team, for their, um, uh, for their partner teams. It's been a nightmare and poor Mark Marquez has suffered fall after fall after fall, both with the original chassis. And if you remember, uh, they had a factory derived chassis earlier in the season. And then they went to a, they went to a third party chassis partway through the season that was being supplied, I think by a German supplier. Um, that's been equally as atrocious for them. And Mark Marquez has been thrown from that bike countless times, but there's increasing speculation that he will depart the team that helped him win so many riders championships as soon as next year. Uh, and then finally, uh, there has been tremendous speculation this year that the Indian 
Indian Grand Prix. Of course, this is the first year that MotoGP is going to India, and they will be racing on the same racetrack that was used for Formula One back in the day when Formula One went to India for a couple of seasons. But there's been tremendous speculation that this this race was never going to happen. Um, however, we're now just a couple of weeks away from the date on the calendar in which it's supposed to happen, and the media is rife with speculation that the tra- track isn't ready, that the race promoters aren't ready, and the riders are also very concerned that from a safety perspective, the track itself isn't ready. Now, Dorna, who is the Liberty equivalent, has been reassuring everyone that yes, 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 the Indian Grand Prix is going to happen at the end of September, as it was always supposed to, but that hasn't alleviated the anxiety of the media, um, the teams, and the riders. And the riders are just as concerned that even if it goes ahead, that the track itself will not be safe um, and will not be formatted correctly for MotoGP Grand Prix motorcycle racing. So my friend, lots going on in the world of MotoGP. Kept that under 10 minutes. Thought I did a pretty good job. (laughs) But my friend... You did, you did. My friend... What are you doing this weekend? As we wrap this up a little early, what are your plans for the weekend? Yeah, a little bit early. We're actually over our time compared to usual. I don't know. It's it's interesting, right? Because you get all keyed up and you get used to like all these races. But you know what the good thing is, at least from my point of view, first kick for NFL this weekend. So if there's going to be a break in Formula One, you know, well, daily. What's your team? What do you root for again? Well. That's an interesting question. I grew up, uh, you know, supporting and cheering for the San Francisco 49ers. So I'm going to be cheering for them this year as usual. So it's uh, really looking forward to seeing what uh, what San Francisco can do. Like I, I'm all keyed up. I watched that uh, that uh, series called Quarterback. I think it was on uh, on Netflix. I didn't really look at the title. I just saw Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and and, and guys like that. And I thought I got to watch this and uh, watch him binge that like in one evening over the summer. So that got me all ready for football season. <laughs> it's been about four weeks since I finished watching that. So like I say, this is the perfect weekend for, for breaking F1. So that's what I'll be doing. Um, all Sunday. Anytime that there's like a, a football, I, that's where I'm going to be, my friend. Anyways, we're going to leave it there. Thank you one and all for uh, listening to the show and downloading and getting in touch. Uh, if you want to uh, send us a message, send us a tweet at uh, ScooterF1Pod on X or Twitter, whatever it's called now. Send us an email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating review. Share our podcast with a friend. And that's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so very much for listening. Enjoy the weekend, and we'll be back again very, very soon. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. Bye for now.